You are listening to The Real Men Feel Show with Andy Grant. Real Men Feel encourages men to allow and express all of their emotions. Despite what you may have been taught, all emotions do serve you. Real Men Feel is committed to engaging in discussions that most men aren't having, but you don't need to be a man to join us. The Real Men Feel Show is produced weekly for your growth and enjoyment. Listen to us on podcast platforms including iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and many more. You can also watch the show on YouTube by visiting realmenfeel.org slash YouTube. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or subscribe on iTunes by visiting realmenfeel.org slash iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at realmenfeel.org and at facebook.com slash realmenfeelshow. All links mentioned in each episode are in the show notes found on the blog at realmenfeel.org. Real Men Feel is brought to you by The Good Men Project. Visit goodmenproject.com for more of the conversations no one else is having. Your reviews, comments, feedback, and participation are welcome during the live show and anytime in our Facebook group, on Twitter, or at realmenfeel.org. Now, let's get into this week's show. Hello and welcome to another edition of Real Men Feel. This is your host Andy Grant, and very excited to have you joining us today and and every day. You know we've uh, this is episode one sixteen, so you can make it through you know half the year at least uh, listening to an episode if you're just catching up with us now. But uh, I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. Uh, is with a gentleman I met through the Good Men Project. He, uh, as well as I, am a contributor writing for them, writing about kind of whatever really topics cross our minds, but uh, dealing with being a man today. And we want to talk about uh, how, you know, being a man's no joke. And there's really no better person to talk about the fact that being a man is no joke than a comedian, author, and idiot, Mr. Nathan Timmel. That's me. Hi, everyone. Oh, hello. So, so where are you coming to us from today? I am coming to you from the uh, great state of Iowa. Um, I moved here in 2007. I was living in Los Angeles and because uh, as a comedian, you know, you have to go to Los Angeles or New York and I chose Los Angeles and I would always come back to the Midwest to tour and play the comedy clubs here. And one night I was uh, at the comedy club in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. It's called Penguins. And I don't know if you have heard of these things, uh, these, these, I, I, you know, like mythical creatures. Uh, I'm not sure how to describe them, but in the audience at this comedy show was a woman. Are you familiar? Are you? I've heard of the concept. Yes. And so this woman, after seeing me on stage, she emailed me and I'm like, oh, this is interesting. So I emailed her back and then she, she said, I liked you on stage. And I said, well, thank you. And then emailing became more emailing became phone conversations became hey i'm gonna be in the midwest again should we look at each other in person and then that became long distance dating and after about a year of long distance dating it became well one of us should move and she's a iowa girl and i was kind of done with los angeles at the time and i'm like this might not be the best for my career but uh i will I will come to you. And that was, like I said, in 2007, and I'm still here. And now that woman and I are married, and we have two kids. So it kind of worked out. Yeah, good. So, so it wasn't that IO is the hub of the comedy universe. It, it was rather that love, love beat comedy for you. It did. And now uh, comedy is being beaten down by life choices such as Iowa. But what are you going to do? I, I kind of expected it, but uh, it's it, you hear these 
I don't want to call them myths and rumors because they happen, but I think it's overblown where they say you can get discovered from anywhere now, just YouTube, because Justin Bieber was discovered on YouTube. But I, that might be 1%, but 99% is still being where the power is, networking and getting to know people and hanging out all hours and putting in FaceTime and well, you just don't, you don't do that in Iowa. So I, I, I put out as many videos as I can and cross my fingers. So I have never visited Iowa, but is, is it inherently funny? Is it a good, is it a good crowd there to be entertained? It's like anywhere. Uh, how do I phrase this? Uh, I'm not going to say anything original right now because it's all been said, but it's all true. Everyone talks about the divide in America between, actually, you know what? I'm not even going to go down that path uh, because Iowa is like anywhere else. You, you will have, it depends on the audience. You can go to the, the biggest uh, city in the world. You can go to New York and end up in front of an audience that isn't interested in laughing. And uh, conversely, you can go to the smallest nowhere town in Iowa or North Dakota and when comedy shows up, because it is so rare, uh, when, when someone at a bar says, hey, we should have a comedy night, uh, the townspeople turn out. They're like, comedy never comes here. It's something different. It's something to do. And it's a fantastic audience. And then again, I, conversely, you can also go to a small town and nobody turns out. It, it, it's all random. It's all happen chance. So okay. yeah, anywhere in America I've been, from the north to south, east, west, rocky, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a coin toss. When you meet someone off stage outside of a club mm -hmm. um, and they discover that you're a comedian, do, do their expectations of you change at all? Um, yes and no. I, I don't know if their expectations change, but I think they generally get disappointed if their expectations change because I, I have an off switch. So off stage, I'm just sort of bland. I'm not trying to get laughs. I'm not... Uh, Hey, you're a comedian? Yeah, I'm a comedian. How are you doing? You know, I'm just sort of like, yeah, it's what I do for a living. And they, you know, I've gotten comments before, like, you're, you're not that funny. I'm like, well, I'm not trying. You know, so if that makes sense, I, I, don't, I think, yes, expectations change a little bit. And then they realize that I'm just a guy and that happens to me my job. It's sort of in a weird way, that doctor thing. Oh, you're a doctor. Hey, my elbow hurts. Could you look like, oh, you're a comedian. Be funny. And it's like, no, like a doctor that doesn't want to diagnose when he's not in the operating room or in his office or her office. Um, I'm not trying to be funny off stage. I'm just, just me. I'm just hanging out. Right. But, but so with that said, is, is your onstage persona a big difference from you day to day? I don't think so. Um, I think on stage it might be a little more reserved. I haven't determined because your, your onstage persona changes over time. I think earlier in my career, I felt I needed to be bigger and louder to get everyone's attention. And lately I've been sort of drawing in and I've, I've even made comments recently. I noticed when someone gets up in front of me, he's talking really fast and really like, ah, I'm so hyper energy that I have said like, all right, we're going to, I'm going to slow things down here. I'm going to speak a little slower and I just want to draw them in and get them paying attention. And it's been working for me. So yeah, I think I'm, I'm, it's it's not too different. You don't I don't create a persona or character for the stage, but it's it's always sort of part of who you are, and you just bring it out on stage or you put it away when you're off stage. But it's not it's never an outright lie or a different character. It's just percentages of who you are. Right. Cool. And gr growing up, were you kind of always the class clown? Were you you know naturally cracking people up or or not? 
Well, depending on how much of it I can remember, <laughs> there's, there's a long story there that I could, I can try and shorten is I, when I might've been five or six years old, I, I'd have to look up the dates. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. Um, I saw the unknown comic on the gong show and that was about the same time I was at a summer camp and we had to do a talent show thing. And that's what I decided to do is put a bag on my head and be the unknown comic because, you know, I'm five years old, so I don't understand what stealing material is, or I just like, I'll do that. And so I always did have a love for comedy. And then um, around that same time, um, we're back in the 70s here when vinyl records were a thing. Uh, my grandmother would always take me to buy records at the store. And usually it was like Kiss or something like that. But one day I'm just this young kid and I see a picture of a guy it was like pretending to pick his nose like this. Do you happen to know what I'm talking about? Yes, I do. Yeah, it was George Carlin's album, Class Clown. And so I said, ooh, a guy picking his nose, buy that for me, it's gotta be funny. And I didn't know it was comedy. I just was a kid responding to you know, this guy pretending to pick his nose. And that album I obsessed over and it had the seven dirty words on it, that sketch. And I memorized that. So here I was this little kid running around a grade school playground saying all seven dirty words and being the pariah of certain parental households. And then somewhere around age 10, I discovered Richard Pryor and made my mom take me see, to see live on the Sunset Strip in the theater. It was a, they recorded his uh, set and put it out in movie theaters. So I saw that. So I was always interested in comedy. And then, and this has nothing, I moved a lot as a child. I moved 10 times before I was 10 years old. So unconsciously, as an adult, I look back on what I'm telling you now and realizing what I did at the time, this was not a conscious thought, but the more I moved, the more I started to internalize and go, oh, if I meet new friends, then the instant my family moves, I lose these friends. And I always show up in a new town and have to start over. So what I started doing is using comedy as both, I would say, a weapon uh, and a defensive mechanism. It could be the sword or the shield. Mm -hmm. uh, if I want to use Dungeons and Dragons or Knight Nerd terms, this is all off the top of my head, I apologize. Um, to either deflect anyone that could be picking on me. It's like, oh, well, here's a zinger back at you. Or, like I said, a defense mechanism, sort of, I'm going to tell a joke first to put something out there like, uh, hey, I don't take myself too seriously, or I, I don't even know what, but it was just comedy was the icebreaker, was the method I used to maybe cover my own personal insecurities. Like, all right, I'm meeting all you new people, but you're not going to know me in a year because we're moving. And so I'm just going to make fun of the whole situation. And I guess that was a long answer to your question, but yeah, that's how, and so comedy just built and built and built to the point where I uh, went to college. I graduated with a degree in English. And when I had that, I'm like, well, I, I'm, I'm unemployable. I can maybe be a teacher. I have no idea. So even though I had been an idiot my whole life in the, you know, not a stand-up comic, but just using comedy throughout school, class clown, maybe. An, an amateur was, idiot. Right. Only after college did I go, well, now I should try standing on stage and giving this a go. And so it, it small, a small seed formed very, very early in life. And then sapling started after college. That's when it started to grow. So it just sort of, what's uh, what would the term be? It uh, germinated? It, uh, yeah. hibernated it, it it sort of built up and then didn't sprout until after college cool so you're, you're a late bloomer mm -hmm. cool well that, that answer was long enough that i could recollect and uh remember some of the uh the same older kids in my neighborhood that turned me on to kiss were the same people that turned me on to that george carlin class clown album so uh 
Yeah. So I, it's, it's unfortunate that, you know, bad kids today don't have a, a physical way to <laughs> corrupt the younger people in their neighborhoods, but I'm sure, I'm sure they're finding a way. But, um, Probably share files like, uh, hey, here's a Spotify file of whoever they're listening to. Yeah. There's I mean, always a way to share. It's yeah. just a matter of is it uh, tangible or is it uh, ones and zeros in your computer or phone. So it was uh, so just like uh, kind of a random chance. Just I'm, I'm going to try getting on stage one night, and that's kind of what began the professional career. Yeah, um, I was. I had gone to. I grew up in Wisconsin, and um, I was going to the University of Wisconsin Milwaukee because uh, I believe their motto at the time was "We're like high school with tuition." Because <laughs> I didn't have the grades to really go anywhere, but they were like, "If you got money, we'll accept you." And uh, I, I went there, and there was a. I think the location is still there, but I'm not sure whether or not they have a Thursday night amateur night. But there was a place called the safe house in Milwaukee. And I just decided, I, I can't re really remember what the impetus was other than, you know, I always liked comedy. Maybe I should try getting on stage myself. And I don't know how common this story is. I've always heard the reverse to what I'm about to tell you. Uh, I really, I, I went there for the first night and signed up and I got on stage and I did really well. I don't remember anything about what I said other than everybody was laughing and, you know, just really into it. And I think the general story is people get on stage and they say they bombed that first time, but they were addicted. Mm. And here's where mine takes a twist where it's not all about me being great and automatic or a natural. Uh, I, I got off stage, you know, full of myself, like, wow, that was my first time and I did great. I'm, I can do this. And then I went back and like, bombed the next four or five times in a row where most people bomb once and go back. I, I killed once and then started tanking. I'm like, Hey, wait a second. They, they were all laughing at this last week. I, I'm supposed to be good. And then everything leveled off and I realized it takes a lot of work and that I got lucky my first time. And, but yeah, I was, I was still addicted. Uh, I just got addicted off the high, not the, uh, not the failure or the, yeah. the need to prove myself. So I do you, if, if that first one didn't work as well as it did, do you think you would have kept going if they were, if the first 10 were all like horrible experiences? Yes, but probably out of spite where I was like, <laughs> I'll show you, I'll keep going back and tell you like me because we all know how uh, yelling and anger works when it comes to getting someone to like you. But I, <laughs> I probably would have really internally gone, I'm going to show you, you are going to like me. I will make you laugh. So yeah, I probably would have still gone back. So you, you obviously must have been the kid that would do like go punch the girl in the shoulder that you liked the most too then, if that was the attitude? I think I was just uh, too shy around most of them. I was, uh, yeah, I, I, I remember, oh, I, I can go back to sixth grade right now in my head and I'm not going to say any names, but I can remember the name of the girl I liked and I would just sort of like try and look at her like, she's so pretty. I'm not going to talk to her though. So that, that, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't punch anybody. I would just be too afraid of like, eh, she'd probably reject me. Cause that, that comes from that insecurity of moving so often that I'd get to a new school and everybody would know everybody from the year before. And, uh, then I'd show up and have to meet everybody for the new day. Hey, who's the new kid? Even though it was a new classroom for everybody, they were all in the same school and they all lived in the neighborhood. And suddenly here was me showing up. So yeah, I didn't punch the girls on the shoulder. I just, uh, I admired them from afar. Look at the story I told you about my wife. I, I didn't, I got off stage and left the club. She emailed me the next day. I'm like, hey, someone likes me. So, 
So, so the story with your wife, is that at all common? Had, had most of your shows, do you get a secret admirer out of the crowd? Uh, I, I wouldn't know because they're secret admirers. Unless they tell me that they admire me, I, I wouldn't know. So I, I have no clue. I, so has anyone else come out of the closet of, of liking you after seeing you on stage than your wife? That is a interesting way of phrasing it because I do very well with the gay community. I, uh, I have a, quite a few gay friends and a lot of them will tell me flat out like, yeah, I saw you on stage. And I was like, ah, damn it. He, he playing for the other team. Well, I'll still befriend him. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, have, I have quite a few uh, gay friends who, who said that the, they liked what they saw on stage and were a little disappointed when I started telling jokes about, I don't know, the girls that had dumped me or, you know, now marriage and such. So, and maybe they hope that was a persona, perhaps, right? You're there you go. There you be. Well, he plays straight on stage, but let's talk to him off stage and see if that's all a cover. <laughs> Comedy is his beard, so to speak. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I remember uh, when when I was in college, we had there was an open. I went to the University of Massachusetts, and um, why am I telling this? Oh, one of my roommates was really funny. The the kind of the naturalist, the naturally funny guy, always cracked people up. And he went on an open mic night and bombed horribly and he never tried again. But so it, it's funny that just your funniest friend, it, it doesn't equate, being a professional comedian doesn't equate to just being the funniest guy you know. I think there are, are several things about that in that um, one of my college friends, Barrett, and I always talk about another friend, Mike, uh, who was incredibly entertaining offstage. Like you said, he just, he, he could... He was, he was a great, he was party funny. If you were at a party with him, he, he knew how to socialize and, you know, like clap you on the shoulder and like, ah, you're one of the guys. And he'd say something funny or it, he, he was always amusing, but that does not translate to the stage. The stage needs to be, you have to be engaging to not one-on-one -on -one people. You have to make an audience feel like you are dealing one-on-one -on -one with that person. And there is a weird different energy maybe I'm not explaining it well, but I'm just trying to say that I know exactly what you're talking about. It is odd. It's the people that always get told you're funny at work or have you, have you ever tried this that more often than not that I've seen that do not do as well on stage. There's something about, uh, two different styles of comedy. The, the, the personal office funny versus the professional can make something funny to an audience of people that, that there's a way of saying something or gesturing while they say something or imparting an idea onto an audience that makes them laugh as opposed to the likability of the office clown or the class clown. Right. Yeah, seems, I've never studied it, but I, 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 I know it's there. Yeah. It seems to be that they're um, kind of the, the funny guy, the party guy, that sort of thing is more of an improv based thing and being very reactionary to what's happening around you. Whereas to go on stage, you've got to have, some material. You've got to have some stories that, that work that you can tell over and over. Yeah. I, I believe that's part of it. Yeah. Cool. So is uh, like, what are some myths that, that people have about, about a professional comedian? Oh goodness. Um, I'm you're, you've, you're stumping me. I'm, I'm drawn up. Maybe if you had questions like, is this true? Is this true? Is this true? I could answer them, but uh, so there's, there's not a com the most common thing that people go, you must be like this. You're like, no, not at all. I can't think of anything because, uh, I mean, comedy is as diverse as life. There are people that are going to tell uh, stories or set up and punchline or 
I mean, yeah, I, I'm, I can't think of any universal truth or any universal misconception off the top of my head. So kudos to you. Goddamned good question because <laughs> you stumped me. I All like right. that. I win. This goes into the archives. <laughs> yes, but we don't win the $25,000 pyramid because the job is not to stump. We need to, we need to come up with the, the, the word on that show. I don't know. Yeah, I play my own game, so it's all right. <laughs> so, does, so since I've stumped you there, let's see. Um, is, is there a joke that stands out top of your mind from your career that just it was the worst bomb or you know, the thing you told once and never again or something you really thought was going to work and no matter how many times you told it, it just never found its audience? I cannot think of any single thing like that, um, but I can tell you that I did do something just two nights ago that's it's similar, but I, I don't, I can't think of anything that I just haven't been able to suss out and make work because if I have an idea and I try it and it doesn't work, I can tweak it and I don't think I've ever given up on anything. I've just tweaked it till it does work or until I like it enough to where it might not be getting applause breaks and people are, you know, putting me on a chair and carrying me around and going, you were funny, but they're just like interested enough that we're like, that's, that's, that's an interesting story, Joe. I like that. You, you know, like I can make it, but um, you have instances where uh, I started a joke maybe two months ago and it started working better and better as, as I tell it and I tweak it and I tell it and I tweak it to the point where it's getting this big laugh every time and people are really enjoying it. And it involves, um, what comes after millennials? Zennials, the, the generation that are teenagers right now, because I think the millennial cutoff point is around 20. So I'm dealing with kids in high school and uh, it, it deals with kids in high school. And uh, I read, I'll just, I'm not going to tell you the joke because I think that's inappropriate. Not that the joke is inappropriate, but I just don't like the idea of being in an interview like, and now let's break into character. Uh, but the joke involves a headline I, I read that said, um, teenagers today are having less sex than previous teenage generations, generations of teenagers, and they're more depressed. And I'm like, well, that's just the most linear headline I've ever read. They're not having sex and they're depressed. So I go into that topic and it, it generally does well. Well, a couple of nights ago on Saturday, I was doing a fundraiser for some kids groups at the uh, at, at a place, and I, I said, "Oh, we're doing a fundraiser for teenagers." Hey, I've got this, and like, it was about fifty minutes into my set, and they had been loving everything, and that one just sat there. And after I finished, I got a laugh by saying, "All right, don't do jokes about uh, teenagers having sex at a fundraiser for teenagers when you're trying to, you know, act." And they all laughed at that, but. Yeah. So I don't have one that's universal, but there are instances where you do have a joke that does well, but in the wrong situation, it will just tank. And kids having sex at a fundraiser for youth activities didn't work. <laughs> so is that, is, is that the, the work of comedy, the, the keep telling and, and sticking with a joke? And like, can you, do you practice material anywhere except on stage in a show? Kind of the best practices on stage, but sometimes because I spend so much time in my car, if I am just on a desolate highway and for some reason I've exhausted all my podcasts or I'm just, there, there are times where you just want silence. You know, I just, I don't feel like listening to music. I'm just driving. And if I get in my head there, sometimes I will, I don't want to say talk through a set or an idea, but like if, if I have this idea that I'm working on, I'm like, oh, what, what was was that I was thinking about? Blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I don't fully articulate it, but if I'm, if I'm 
isolated and alone and just trapped in my head, I can come up with ideas or fix or like, wait a second, why have I never said that? And then quick hit record on the phone as I'm driving and then try it that night on stage as I'm going to the gig or when recording a, a live performance and listening to it back uh, while driving, then you can come up like, oh, well, I, I've never said this. This would be the perfect, like you just get ideas. So, yeah. so do you listen to each show and, and hear it back? Do you do that? Not every show, but I generally do try to record what I'm doing on the off chance because of, of spontaneity on stage mm -hmm. where I learn. And this, the, the beautiful thing about phones today is, uh, you know, before uh, handheld recording devices were available, um, you'd have, I, I remember, I remember full well tagging a joke or saying something that I'd never said and it got a huge laugh and I would would shout from the stage to the other comic like hey I've never said that before write that down on a napkin for me please I'm not kidding write that down and I'd get off stage and I go uh, and I, I'd had forgotten and maybe 10 minutes later I'd go, oh wait I told you to write something down for me what was it and he goes oh I thought you were kidding and I, and I it would be just gone it would be gone hmm. and so now by recording shows um, if I accidentally say something funny I have it on tape. So it's not that I listen to every show, but I do record as often as possible. Um, and, and plus, if I don't audio record, I try and bring a video camera many places because every so often I like to just snip two minutes out and throw it up on YouTube, mm -hmm. going all the way back to how do you get discovered? Well, I have over an hour of jokes on YouTube at this point on uh, just, just from putting it on, putting them on, putting them on, just, just constantly putting them out there. No, and uh, I mentioned about the start of the show that you're a columnist at the Good Men Project. And we've talked about that um, prior to the show that, um, you know, your, your, your pieces aren't always, they're not always funny pieces. And you've said that your, your writing is intentionally like that. It, this, is, this is one of your outlets that doesn't have to be funny. Yeah, that's, uh, I, when I am on stage, the audience wants to laugh. That is my job. But... I have all sorts of ideas in my head and writing uh, some of writing allows me to articulate some of these other ideas or just get them out of my system, whatever they are, purge them. So I'm not thinking about them. And that's the nice thing about writing them is they don't have to be funny. And so a lot of what I write is nothing I could take to the stage, not, for any other reason, then it's, it's not amusing. It's just an idea. I'm like, you know what, I've been thinking about this and here's what I think. And then it's just gone and people can react to it or ignore it or like it or not like it. Um, but I think it would be selfish for me to get on stage and just freeform ideas or try and work them out that have no humor in them. So, so does that mean there are some subjects that can't be funny or just you don't want the pressure of having to convert every thought you have into something funny? I'd say it's the latter. I mean, I, I've found, and I'm, I, I don't think, hmm, my mind didn't go somewhere dark when you just said that, but it went somewhere, uh, the idea of certain subjects should be verboten, um, like rape. I, I don't think I could really ever make rape funny. Uh, if I write about it, it tends to be very, I've written a couple of pieces on it and it's, it's, it's serious and it's, um, um, I'm, I'm trying to get in my head, like, how could this happen? Or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around such a violent, dark, horrible act. 
And at the same time, I have seen two comics do jokes on the subject that I went, wow, that's funny. I would never look at such a horrible, dark subject like that and somehow make it funny, but they did and props to them. So I think it's more, and and it doesn't have to be a dark subject like that. Like I said, that's just where my mind went. Mm -hmm. There, there are things about my kids that the actually the exact opposite of such a dark, horrible subject. There are things about my kids that I just find so endearing and loving. And it would be me on stage like, Hey guys, my kids are so awesome. Let me tell you about this cute thing they did. And it's not funny, but I I absolutely love what my kids did and I want to get it out there. So I will write a piece about fatherhood or parenting that isn't meant to be funny. It's just me being a dad that loves his children. And I wanted to tell this story about them. And again, you can either read it or you can go, this guy's talking about his kids and click past it. If you're in an audience, if you, if you are a member of an audience, if you are in a comedy club and I start talking about my kids, you're kind of trapped. Yeah, you can get up and leave, but you know, people generally don't do that. Once you've paid to see a movie, you watch the movie, you're sitting there with your drink in the comedy club. So I try not to take advantage of that. Like you're trapped. Now you're going to listen to me talk about my BS. You're listening to me talk about my BS regardless, but I'm doing my best to make it funny. So is there a, aside from rape, is there anything inherent in, in being a man or in masculinity today that, that can't be joked about? I don't No, I don't think any topic should be uh, not joked about or, is off limits. It's just a matter of, is what you're saying funny? Do you feel like tackling the subject? I, I, I saw John Stewart ask that question once and he answered it more deftly than I did. I, I believe his answer was like, you're telling me, or you're asking if we shouldn't make fun of certain things when what we have going on in the world today, the reality of it, because what happens in reality is more absurd than anything a comedian could dream of. So we're just trying to put a twist on it and make it funny. But that taking what he said aside, what I just said has me, you know, some gears spinning up here. If you try, if you say there are some subjects that shouldn't be joked about, then you're getting into, well, there are some subjects that shouldn't be talked about. And life is life. Everything in life should be fair game. Um, And it just, not everybody's going to like everything. Like, There are people that no matter what you talk about, um, be it a horrible, dark subject or even a light subject, people aren't going to like it. So it's a matter of, as a comedian, what do you feel is appropriate and or what do you feel you can make funny or what do you want to talk about? And can you bring the best you forward as you talk about topics you find interesting? I don't find, as we talked about, that horrible, dark subject worth joking about. So I just stay away from it. But as I said, I've seen comedians make funny jokes about things. So it's, I've seen, I've seen hilarious nine 11 jokes. I actually have not a nine 11 joke, but I had a joke that used nine 11 to talk about an overarching point I was trying to make where I was not making fun of nine 11, but I was making fun of something else and using nine 11 as an example. So yeah, there, I, most people would say, Oh, don't talk about nine 11. I think everything can be fair game. It's life. It's, it's a matter of, and I don't want to put censorship on anybody. Are you mocking? Are you hurting? Are you attacking as you talk about a subject that might be sensitive? Or are you trying to understand it, explore it? Uh, it you know, 
And then, but again, if I'm trying to understand and explore something, I'm not going to tell someone else, you can't mock that subject. Mm. Everything's fair game. It's, it's all on what the comedian chooses to do with their subject and their point of view and their time on the stage. Hmm. Yeah. I, even if I hear someone just do, Oh, you get that groaner. I appreciate that, that, you know, someone went somewhere instead of just leaving, you know, I'm not going to touch that, that third rail, that sort of cliche right. or uh, so has, has the concept of, you know, too soon uh, shown up in, in your own material and performance at all? Yeah. Um, this is, <laughs> I mean, I, 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 God, I, this is, I only did it like once or twice just because it was so too soon that I felt I had to do it. Um, there was a period of time and I can't remember all of them where something horrible would happen and I would have a show that night or the very next night and I would make a joke about it. Like, um, and, and I'm not going to be able to make this funny because it's not in context, but I remember when the space shuttle Columbia disintegrated over Texas, I believe it was. Um, the joke I did on stage that night was something along the lines of, and I'm, I'm going to screw this up because I don't remember it clearly, but be, in the three months or four months or six months preceding that space shuttle launch, all we heard about was how one member of in sync or the Backstreet Boys, there was someone in a boy band that wanted to go up in the shuttle. And after it disintegrated, my joke involved, you know, he didn't get to go up in the shuttle, which makes the, the shuttle mishap even more tragic because this way we lost six innocent lives. But if we had lost a boy band member, it would have been, we lost five innocent lives and then just some guy in a boy band, something like that. I was trying to lessen the tragedy by saying that if, if a kid in a boy band died, it wasn't, tra I don't remember exactly, but yeah, I would, I would come up with a joke that was definitely too soon because I remember being on stage the night that shuttle fell apart and doing that joke about the boy band guy that wanted to be on the shuttle. Yeah. It's funny. Cause I, I, I've never thought about it, but yeah, when you're the person showing up in town to entertain, make funny, and it's the day that something tragic has happened. It's almost like you can't ignore the elephant in the room. You've got to at right. least say there's nothing funny and then move on or give it your best shot. Yeah. I, on, on, on 9, 12, 2001, uh, I, I made the offhand comment. I said, wow, Osama bin Laden must've really been trying to impress Jodie Foster. And that was it. That was all I came up with because I mean, either you got it or you didn't. And you know, it was a, was that a Mark David Chapman reference? Yeah. I think it was him. Yeah. The, yeah. The, so wait, no, he shot Lennon. Who shot Reagan? Hinckley. Oh, Hinckley shot yeah, Reagan. Hinkley was, yeah, yeah. I, Hinkley was the one that was trying to impress Jodie Foster by shooting. See, but that, that, that was just where my mind went because 9-11 uh, happens and it's horrible and the, we're all in a state of shock. And then by the afternoon, they're saying, okay, we think it's this, this terrorist cell in Afghanistan and this is their leader. And then my mind naturally goes, well, that leader was probably trying to impress Jodie Foster. And then it's just a throwaway comment. It's just, yeah. it, it's not an attack on anybody that lost their lives. It's not, I don't think it's making fun of the event. It was just my way of dealing with it or acknowledging it. And then moving on, we're all trying to laugh on Wednesday, 9-12. I was, I remember I was in um, Nebraska. What town was I in? I could look it up, but I just, I just remember I was in Nebraska on 9-12-2001. And that was the joke I did. So yeah, too soon is never soon enough to me. And, and do you recall the, what was the reaction on, on the 12th there? 
I think it was it was fine. It wasn't like that's the funniest thing we ever heard, but it also wasn't like mm, you know, it was just sort of like it was sort of like what you think like, yeah, all right, that happened. And then you know, like you said, it 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 got it out of our system and that was it. And then we were able to move forward and just laugh and for those thirty minutes I was on stage, not think about what had happened the day before. Yeah. Because that's giving people permission to laugh even that even that soon to that event like even like saturday night live was off the air for at least a full week or more longer well all the all the talk shows were gone for a while or several days i remember letterman's return everybody remembers his speech and yeah it 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 knocked us out of it for a while like like it like it should have it was an important event and i just yeah it it knocked us out of it so at some point you got to start healing and (laughs) maybe the very next day is not but that was the day I had my gig and they right. didn't cancel. Yeah, you, they, they didn't call me and say, we're canceling the gig. They said, we're doing the gig. And I'm like, all right, well, if you're, if you're having comedy the day after this horrible tragedy, then let's, let's have comedy. Let's do it. And, yeah. and we did, they did. It wasn't my call. You know, I, I still had a mortgage to pay that month or rent. So I, I couldn't say, you know what? I feel too funny about doing jokes. The next day I, I had to buck up and say, all right, let's, let's move forward. Is it- so to, let me dig into that. Um, so in your personal life with, with an actual life and things happening, have you had to go on stage? And it's been a really sad, tragic, depressing day for you personally. Absolutely. Um, knock on wood, not lately, but um, years and years and years ago, um, my first real relationship, my first long-term, this is the woman I love, I'm going to marry relationship uh, she, she cheated on me and dumped me and I would have to get on stage. And what I, what I discovered, my buddy described it best because back then so many years ago, I was uh, splitting my time between going to open microphones and or hosting shows. I was on the bottom of the comedy show totem pole. And he said that, you know, those 15 minutes you're on stage are 15 minutes minus pain because I would force myself not even force myself. I would just forget about everything. I wasn't going on stage and so life sucks because I just got dumped and taking it out on the audience. I was doing the opposite. I'm like, okay, for these 15 minutes, I'm just going to do my jokes. And I didn't have that much material anyway, because I was just starting out. So I would just do my jokes and, you know, they would be laughing and just be and the instant I would get off stage, it would all come back to me and I would go in a corner and just be miserable. Um, but for those 15 minutes, I would forget it. And that, not just that, I'm, I'm going sideways here. Um, I remember several years ago that uh, I had a really bad sciatica and I would be laying on the floor of the green room before the show and sometimes I'd be laying on the floor and putting my legs up on the wall just anything I don't know if you've ever had any sciatic experiences it, horrible but uh when there was like and coming to the stage Nathan Timmel I would walk out and it just I for 30 minutes 45 minutes completely fine physically wonderful like yeah I could lift a car let's go shoot some hoops and then as I was waving goodbye and walking behind the curtain into the green room I would just like double over and go, I need to lay down again. But, and it wasn't anything other than, I don't know, adrenaline or endorphins kicking in, but on stage. So yes, emotional pain can disappear on stage. Physical pain can disappear. Um, 
So I'm saying that if I ever get cancer, I'm never going to leave the stage. Hey, <laughs> joke. Nice. <laughs> so it's, I, I, that, that's great because I, I did want to ask, have, uh, have lessons you've learned from, from being on stage, from performing, entertaining, carried over in, into your kind of daily life as far as, you know, not being attached or unattached to, to reactions or being okay when things flop or, you know, how, how, is, how do things like that show up in your life? Um, it, it, I, I try and, uh, keep my eyes open, not just, uh, I try and learn from people that are bigger and better and more important than me. And it doesn't have to be comedy. What you made me think of is an interview I read maybe two years ago with Bono, the lead singer of U2. And he said that when they were, you know, they play stadiums and he said, sometimes he will still get in that mindset where he is on stage and in front of a stadium full of 80,000 people who have paid to see him and he'll be focusing on the one person that has their arms crossed and looks like they're having a bad time. And he's like, I have to get in my head and go, let it go. Just look at the rest of the audience or do your songs, but he'll just keep finding himself looking over at that side. And so I'm like, wow, it happened. Even when you're that huge, because I used to do that. And that helped me realize that I'm not, you know, crazy or I'm like, why am I focusing on this one guy? I'm like, oh, it happens there. And that helps you let it go when you realize it's humanistic. It's not just me thinking that way. Like, why is that one guy crossing his arms and not liking me? And then it also, so I, it, it teaches me several things. One, not everybody's going to like you. No matter what, no matter what you do, you can be the nicest person in the world. You can be just not everybody is going to like you. So let it go. You have to, you know, Elsa that shit. Um, and two, you never know what anyone is thinking. So I try not to assume because I have had many experiences where I'm on stage and the audience is laughing, but I've noticed there's that one person in the corner just giving me the stink eye or has their arms crossed or looks like they're having a bad time. And that person is the one that comes up to me after the show and says, you were great. Thank you so much. Uh, I had a great time. And sometimes they tell you a story. You know, sometimes they just leave and you're like, you look like you were having a bad. And I, I've seen, I'm, I'm all over the place and I apologize. Um, sometimes they tell you a story like I just got dumped or my dad died. We went to the funeral funeral yesterday and they said get out of the house let's take you to a comedy show it's like it's like a microcosm of the 9-11 thing you just went to your parents funeral the next day let's try and get you laughing again so even though they weren't physically representing their joy afterward they said look I really enjoyed what you did you made me forget my funeral um and I had another thought where was I going with it is just not to assume never assume what someone is thinking or going through because I have, everyone talks about reading body language and even body language can lie to you. You can look at someone that thinks they are, that, oh, the other thought I was going to say is maybe when I was younger and I think I might've done it a couple times and I still see comics today do it where they find that person like, what's wrong with you? You having a good time? And they're like, I'm, I'm having a fine time. Well, show it to your face. You know, like they, and then the person, now they are angry. They're like, I was just sitting in this audience enjoying myself. And now you're yelling at me for not laughing. Now I'm not having a good time. So I, I just let it go. And I try and bring that with me to life. Um, hell, I just had an experience on Facebook the other day where it was a political disagreement. And I'm like, well, whatever you're, you're typing in all caps here. And I, I'm just not going to take it personally because I, I, I don't care. I, we're not having a face-to-face. -face, so I just try not to get wrapped up into, I never know what anyone's going through. I never know what they're really thinking. So I just 
you know, take everything as sort of, I don't even want to say face value because that's wrong. I just, I, the benefit of the doubt, I always give the benefit of the doubt and, uh, try not to get too wrapped up in my own judgment of what anyone's thinking because to where, where this question started on stage, I have learned not to judge or make assumptions. So I try and I probably fail a lot, uh, to carry that with me off stage is just don't judge, just let people approach you as, as you know, chance may be catch as catch can. So, so I've asked you about kind of, uh, the hard things to joke about and the difficult things and bombs and such. So is there anything that, uh, about, um, being a man that is just inherently funny and kind of always works or is there a, you know, is it fart jokes? Is it something that always you can count on? I, I don't think so. I don't know. I mean, if you want to talk about anything about being a man, that's inherently funny. I mean, we have these silliest, stupid bodies. We do the, the, you, you talk about uh, the penis and erections and a flaccid penis. It's just there. It's, it's absurd look at yourself in the mirror, the male body, especially from the waist down. Like if you see a chiseled guy or a Brad Pitt and you're like, Oh, okay. He's, he's got to, but then you take the pants off of any guy and you're like, well, that's just silly looking. That's just, that's just goofy. So there, there's always humor in sexual, uh, how do I put it in sexual physicality? Cause I, I'm, I'm trying, as I started saying sexual, I'm like, well, no, not sexual orientation. That's not always funny. Not sexuality. That's a, it, physicality, sexual physicality. The idea that just, like I said, it's absurd. Men, we like to think we're virile and like, you know, arms akimbo, look at me. But the penis is just absurd. So I think, I think going to physicality and usually turning it on myself, you know, I'm on stage talking about me and, uh, relationships with my wife, uh, physical relationships. And I'm, it's just, it's goofy. Men are goofy. So I don't know if that actually answers your question, but that's the best I can come up with. If, is there a go-to, I think men generally understand. And, and, and if they don't, if they are all dude, I got the best swinging dick in the world. Well, then it's even funnier because no, you don't. The, the male body is just absurd. There's a, uh, I don't know the, the um, Peter Griffin and, and the family guy. Yeah, he has some throwaway line of "I'm just like a big letter Q," and he's like, "What?" And like that when I finally like, "Oh my god, that, yeah. that, that's always great." I don't know why that one line has stayed with me for years, but just right. the big letter Q. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I like that too. But yeah, men are, men are goofy. That's just inherently <laughs> that could be a great book. <laughs> and you 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 have written quite a few books. I I that's what I do with my uh, downtime. I um. I'm trying to think of how I want to phrase this, but uh, I'll just say it. It's, it's, it's a little judgy, but I don't mean it to be. It's, it's more observational, I think, than judgy. But when I, I started touring as a comic, I would uh, obviously talk to the other comedians, and I noticed quite a few that treated being a comedian as a vacation. Like, uh, you, you go to the comedy club, you work on two hours a night and then you're throwing back drinks and you're sleeping in the next day and you're not really doing. And I'm like, huh, well that, that, that's fine, but I'm trapped in a hotel room. So instead of sleeping in or, you know, I write, that's what I do. That's where I write the articles that I, that I send in. That's where I write my books is if I, if I'm in a hotel room, I, I could stare at the television or I could try and get some of these ideas out of my head and do something that, 
whether or not it is productive is subject to interpretation, but I'm trying to do something. I'm trying to just continue to move forward creatively because that's that my job is supposedly being creative. So that's, that's the books you mentioned um, all came from being trapped in a hotel room. So does, hmm, if you give you the chance to, to call out one or two of the books, are, did, did anything stand out like these, you know, because I've written a lot of books too, and you know, I forget some of them. So it's like anything standing like, yeah, these, these are the ones that are actually worth reading, right? right? What, would you, what would you put I, out there? I forget all of what I've written, so I can't uh, because I've had people reference what I've written to me, and I'm like, huh, what is that? And they're like, you wrote that. And I'm like, oh, all right, well, not too bad. I, I guess I was insightful for an accidental moment there. Um, what, I, what I would say, the best responses I've had um, – the first full-length book I wrote, it's called I Was a White Knight Once. Uh, and what I did is I, it's a weird sort of, I didn't like straightforward mem memoirs. I wrote, I read a bunch of personal life stories by a lot of you know, celebrities and people. And I decided what I did and did not like about formats. So what I did is I took, um, it is a birth until this point in my life story of my life, but interspersed. So it'd be like, okay, here's age zero to five, but then boom, here's a story of me as a comedian going to Iraq and performing for the troops. And then here we get back to my life. Now I'm six years old and I'm seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old. And boom, here I am in Afghanistan or Japan. So it's one of those, you see it in movies a lot where just altering, playing with time. So it's not just here I am age zero through when I wrote the book, I don't know, 36, something like that. It's here's, you know, just it, it juts and that it kept people off their guard. And the responses I got were that they really liked it because it didn't become too bogged down in any one area. Like, okay, I'm sick of reading about him as a kid or I'm sick. Cause it was like, Oh, well that was an interesting chapter. Like, Oh, and now he's flying in a black Hawk helicopter. And Oh, now as a kid, he's moved again. Oh, and now he's it. it so that book uh, got some nice, notice on Amazon. And then because I always write about what I'm interested in, I would, and I, 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 I apologize, this is a generic answer, but just look me up on Amazon where everything I've written is, and I've written about different subjects. So there could be something that interests you as a, like, I can't give a pat answer, like you should read this, but I was a substitute teacher for a while. You know, if I'm a comedian on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, well, I'm home Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, so I would substitute teach, and I wrote about that. Um, I, I've put out just a little 99-cent mini Kindle book about being uh, touring for a uh, military going overseas. I've written about being a comedian. I've written about being a father. So you can just go through and look at all these subjects like, you know, it's fairly diverse, and it's difficult for me to point anyone at one book because I don't know what anyone's interested in. Right. I, I'm besides the white knight is there is there one that you like the most like is, is was there any book just written for you and like oh i like this and i don't care if anyone else does ever maybe if there was i don't remember what it is because <laughs> i don't remember what i've written um if i were to pick one to answer that question i think i would pick just a little 99 cent kindle thing i put out there called um what is it called? Uh, touched. Oh, okay. Touched by anything but an angel and other word salads. And first of all, I, I like the title. 
and the, it's, it's a, there, I believe there are four short stories in this book. And one of them is me getting a massage from a man, which happens, you know, you go to a masseuse, uh, but this was a very awkward sort of, I think I described him when I wrote about it as sort of like Carl Rove looking ish. So, and, and, and I, I, I'm just going to be honest. I hate it. We all hate being superficial or judgmental, but yeah, if, if I walk into a masseuse and it's this buff guy with a six pack, I'm like, all right, yeah, he, he could, he could give me a rub down. He looks like, but when you walk in and it's this tubby guy that's balding and looks like Carl Rove and you're like, and he's going to be putting his meat paws on me. All right. And so I wrote about that and I found it amusing. And then I wrote a story about, uh, this, you talk about just for me, when I uh, went to college in Boston before Milwaukee, so when I said earlier I went to Milwaukee, I did. I went to Berkeley College of Music for a while in, in Boston. Um, so I like to choose unemployable careers. Uh, spend a ton of money at a college for music, then get a degree in English, then become a comedian. I, I make horrible life choices. Move to Iowa to be a comedian. Um, anyway. Uh, in Boston, I, my, my, I mentioned him already in passing earlier, I believe, Barrett, my, my, my roommate, my best friend. Uh, he had a nose for public pornography, I guess. It'd be like we would just be walking on the street and suddenly he'd go, hmm, and he'd sort of look and walk over and pick a Polaroid up of, because back in the day when we were, there was no internet porn. So people would take Polaroids of themselves doing, and he would just find it everywhere on city streets. And so what we would do is, I'm, I'm, this might be a little graphic, I'm not gonna be graphic, but he found a Polaroid of a man bent over. You couldn't see his face naked, so you could only see you know, the, the, the back end of him. And he had uh, a pencil sticking out of his uh, posterior. And what we did with that picture is then, we would hide it in people's textbooks so that they would take it to class and then like, you know, open it up and there's this picture and they're surrounded by people. And one, I think his name was Chris. One guy, actually, we put it in his notebook and he got his notebook out and I'm, I haven't told the story in forever. So I'm, I'm really struggling. But if I remember correctly, there was a girl at the next desk who said, Hey, I'm sorry, do you have a sheet of paper I can borrow? And he pulled out the notebook and this picture of a guy naked with something in his butt drops out and she looks at it and she looks at him and he's like, I'm going to kill those guys. <laughs> you know, and it was just, so yeah, that was, that, that's a story I wrote just for me because it's kind of gross in a way, but it's, it's, it's good. Young male hijinks is yeah. the way I described it. Is when you're in your early twenties, very late teens, and you're you're busting your friends' chops with, you know, it, it, yeah. The, the the other two stories I don't remember, but yeah, though that that one was just sort of for me, like <laughs> very young male humor. And whether people enjoy it or not, I don't know, but I put it out there because I enjoyed writing it. Good, good. That's uh, and I, I hope your friend did put his uh. His, his gift for public porn discovery. I hope that got put to good use for the rest of his life. <laughs> I, I will say this, just because it's coming to me. I do remember that the people we would hide it in their books, they were so stupid because they would say, I'm going to get you back. And we're like, oh, okay. So what we would do is, because after the picture ended up in their possession, before we'd go to class, we'd just rifle through our books and go, oh, well, there it is. And then we'd take it out. So, and then they would not do the same thing. They would, they'd like, ah, did we get you? Like, oh yeah, you got me. Ha ha. But we don't, and then we'd slip it and they, 
for some reason, they, they would always announce that they were going to get us. And then two, they never check their books before going to class. It's like, how do you fall for the same thing over and over? I, I'm, I'm having wonderful memories now of college. <laughs> well, good, good. My, my mission is accomplished for today. <laughs> so you've, uh, well, actually, the, the book I was trying to get to, um, which you just don't want to mention, <laughs> is the one that I probably I like. don't remember I wrote it. <laughs> no. Well, it's it's the letters to your kids for them to read in the future. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I uh that was um as it was as an unoriginal idea by my wife. Um she was online and she saw a letter written from a father to a daughter and she said, "Wow, that is that is such a good idea. You do that." And I'm like, "Oh, okay. Well, I've been tasked now." So, yeah, in hotel rooms first with my daughter because she was born first. So she's the oldest. And then my son, I would tell them alternately stories from my life. Um, sometimes mistakes I've made so that they may hopefully do better or more importantly, where I was, why I wasn't home and with them every weekend. And it it's, I, I should be doing it again now, although my daughter understands, but she's six years old and she's become more and more aware. She did this, I think last week, I came out of the bedroom and she got incredibly sad. She goes, where are you going? And I said, huh? She goes, when you're dressed like that, it means you're leaving because I'm not sitting around in sweats and a t-shirt. I'm dressed for the stage. And she goes, I was like, I don't want you to go. I want daddy to stay home. And I'm like, sweetie, this is just a one night thing. I will be back when you wake up. I promise. So, but be, things like that. I, I, I want them to have an active, um, a, a handbook of where I was, why I was not home, what I do for a living, what we did earlier in that week. Like on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we went here, we did this, we had these interactions, and then I had to leave you Friday and drive to Chicago or fly to here. And so, yeah, those books, um, they get remarkably well uh, received when, when people email me or talk about them. And it goes to what you were saying a lot earlier is there are some funny stories in there because they're kids and they have to be funny. But the response I get from those books that you just mentioned, uh, one is called it's okay to talk to animals and other letters from dad, because what at that point I was describing is my daughter probably notices me talking to the dog, not just talking like, who's a good boy, but like actively carrying on a conversation with the dog. And I'm like, I'm not crazy, but you know, it's okay to talk to animals. And then the one for my son is called, um, Hey buddy. And other dubious advice from dad. Um, where was I going with this? It's just the idea that, uh, Oh, where the response I get is, uh, very, feminine women really are like, wow, I see you on stage and you're funny and you're a little edgy and you're kind of dark. And I did not see this emotional side of you. And again, it goes to the release. I can't be emotional on stage. Really. It's not funny, but they, they, people have said that they've teared up, that they've genuinely cried, not like, oh, but like warm tears of like that single tear, like that is so touching or they really enjoy those stories. And they did not expect an idiot comic to, come out and, and touch their hearts and be emotional. And yeah, I'd forgotten about those because they're a couple of years old at this point, but yeah, the, the good pull, thanks for bringing them up. They, they really, people like those and they find them touching and funny and, and genuinely, I, I hate to say inspiring, but I did have one person tell me not one, I've had several, but one comes to mind now, uh, Simon, you don't need it, you know, but I uh, was like, um, you, I read your, books and how you interact with your kids and 
they make me want to be a better father and interact with my kids better. Like I, I tell a story of interacting with my daughter at Target and because she's taking things off the shelf and she was like two years old. So I sat down on the floor with her and we took things off the shelf. They were pill bottles and she wanted to shake them. So I'd take them off and we'd sit, we, we sat and shook pill bottles together because she was experimenting. And, and he said, you know, and my friend Mary said the same thing, but they say that when my kid would touch something, I just yell like, Hey, don't touch that. And then they read me saying, well, if you're going to, you know, play with it, as long as you're not breaking something, you're like, we're not in a China shop, knocking things over and breaking them. I mean, there are limits, but yeah, I, 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 I never thought anyone would look at me and say, wow, you're, you're, you're my model for parenting. I'm like, wow, you should aim higher. Yeah, but you're in trouble. I'm just saying, yeah, you're in trouble if you're, but yeah. Uh, it's not that I didn't want to mention those books. I just forgot I wrote them, but <laughs> no, because <laughs> They get yeah, good. Go most of the stuff I've read from you has been pretty edgy in the things I've seen. And when I first read, I think, I think it's always been, been Hey Buddy letters that I've read. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, yeah, Nathan has a full heart and soul. Like I, like I'd, I did not see that before. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And, and I'm not a parent and uh, I, yeah, you might, you might've even gotten a tear out of me. It's possible. <laughs> but uh, you know, you, I, you, uh, yeah, I felt you, but um, yeah. I definitely wanted to get those mentioned. And, and I want to know. Thank any, you. Thanks for the kind words. Have you, any of your kids grown up enough to read any of those letters you wrote? No, not yet. And I, I, I have no ego. I know that I wrote these books for me. I say they're for the kids, but they're kids. They will not appreciate them until they are 30 or 40 or have kids of their own. Because like, when are you going to give them to your kids? I'm like, I don't know. Like, what am I going to do? Give it to a 15 year old. They're going to be like, whatever, dad, loser, you know, like they're not interested. Am I going to give them their twenties where they're like discovering alcohol in college and either the other gender or the same gender, depending on what they are oriented toward. I have no idea at this point. Uh, cause they're young, they're four and six. Um, so I don't, I don't know when they're going to read them, but I do know they're not going to appreciate them for a long time. So I, I, I have no ego in thinking that I'm going to present them and say, here, I wrote this about there. And they're going to be like, dad, that's so great. They're going to be like, whatever, old man. Yeah. Well, someday they will go, wow. These someday. Are I'm yeah. sure of it. Yeah. Probably when they have their own kids, but not for a while. And uh, you, you mentioned a couple of times uh, performing, performing for the troops. So yeah. I do want to give you a chance to talk about that. And, you know, how, if at all, is a show like that different for you? Um. It's different in that, how do I put this without coming off like a judgmental sort of douchebag? I love what I do. Uh, I love being a comedian, but I know my place. I know that I'm not changing the world. I'm just on stage being a, a, a dork. Uh, but getting to perform for American troops stationed in Iraq or Afghanistan, it really actually, and, and not not from me, from them, when they would talk to me after the show, it made me realize or that, that I am doing something that I, that in those instances, I am actually making a small difference. I don't, I don't ever get off. And I know I said it earlier that there could be someone in the audience that just, you know, had their parent die and they needed to laugh. And I changed and for that moment I was there for them. Uh, but I never get off stage going, well, that audience needed me. I'm great. But when you're doing a military show and afterward, afterwards, these people are insanely, 
amazing and humble and they are walking by shaking your hand saying, Hey, thanks so much for coming over and telling us jokes. And I'm saying, I, I, I just came here and told you jokes. You are stationed here. This is your life. Don't thank me. But then they're thanking me. And so it's, it's very honoring, incredibly humbling. Um, to get to do that and to have to receive thanks when you don't want it, when they're saying thank you, and you're like, don't thank me. This is your life. I'm just, I'm just a comedian. Um, but that's what it did for me as a comedian is, is it try it that maybe my, my profession helps just a little bit in those instances, because I, I want to, I'll just tell you a very quick story. I'm, I might think of another one while I'm telling this one, but the best compliment I have ever received as a comedian and probably will ever receive came at, uh, I believe it was Camp Anaconda in Iraq. And there was a, a woman, I believe her name was Leah. I'd have to look it up. Uh, after the show, she came up to me and she's shaking my hand. She didn't shake it so much. She did that thing where uh, you put your hand out and then she just sort of clasped it and held my hand because she had something she wanted to say. And she, you know, so she just sort of holds it nicely, not pulls you in like, you know, like, ah, you're going to, she just, she, she took my hand and she held it. She goes, I just wanted to say thank you. I just wanted to say thank you because while you were on stage and I was laughing for a moment, I forgot where I was. I was laughing so hard, I was doubled over, and I, and I saw my own legs, because I'm, I'm doubled over, I'm looking at my legs, and I went, wait a second, why am I wearing camouflage? And, and then I looked at my arms, and I realized I was in uniform, and I looked around the theater, and I saw everybody in uniform, and I went, oh, that's right, that's right, I'm in Iraq right now, I am thousands of miles away from my friends and family, but for a moment, I forgot thank you. And nothing's ever going to top that. Yeah. I mean, how, how nothing except for a show I did in Afghanistan, but that's too long to get into probably, but it's, it's moments like that. That's what performing for the military has done for me cool. in a yeah. nutshell. Yeah. That, that's powerful. That's powerful for yeah. sure. Um, so, so what are the best ways people can get in touch with you, find you, learn more about you and hopefully forget where they are? Yeah, uh, just NathanTimmel.com is the uh, place for all things me. Um, I can be found on all the popular social media sites, Twitter, Facebook. Um, I don't understand Tumblr, but I have a presence there. Um, Pinterest, again, don't really get it, but I, 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 I have a Pinterest page that I post everything to. And this is not a joke. Um, this is a question for you. Uh, I will interview the interviewer now. The interviewee will turn. Do you have a Pinterest page? I do. Have you noticed a change in it over the last month? I don't visit monthly, so no. Okay. See, I just show up and post and leave. I don't really play. Like Facebook, it's easy to play around on. You have this feed of, and I, I suppose Pinterest has a feed too, but do you, algorithms are supposed to... Um, when, when you click on something, there's supposed to be an algorithm that says, oh, this is what he clicked on. There should be more of this as what he's looking at. With Pinterest, I just post what I'm going to post and I leave. And yet lately, my homepage has been filled with vampire and goth and emo, we wear dark eyeliner stuff. And I'm just like, 
I thought Pinterest was about recipes and other, like where did all this come from? And I would like to know what I have ever clicked in my life that made my personal Pinterest page full of goth kids and vampires. I, Pinterest has the ability to pierce into your heart and present you what you really are. That's, what I, that's my belief. All right. So, but yeah, as far as uh, finding me online, if you're into Pinterest, I have something there. <laughs> Twitter, Twitter, Facebook, NathanTimmel.com. You can find everything. I, I believe I have links to my Amazon page, the books. You just Google my name, Nathan, T-I-M-M-E-L. And I, I am the only Nathan Timmel out there. So when you Google Nathan Timmel, you just find me. Unless you go back far enough. When I lived in Los Angeles, I worked on uh, property representation for filming, which means I was like behind the scenes when they're. And so somewhere along the way, I worked with someone. I don't know. I don't know who this is. A screenwriter, and they went, "Ah, oh, Nathan Timmel. That's a good name. I'll use that." And there's a character on CSI who like one episode there's a kid like an eight-year-old and they named that person Nathan Timmel like right I'm like because I worked on a an episode and like two months later there's a character named so all they did was look at the sheet like I'm writing a script Nathan Timmel all right I'll use that so someone used my name for a CSI uh episode and I've never seen it but I remember you know so you're, you're gonna google you're gonna find me and then a fictitious character on CSI all right so choose choose carefully who you follow yes <laughs> Awesome. Well, uh, and I'll throw uh, links to all the various ways to track you down on the Goodman Project and at realmenfeel.org. Uh, I really want to thank you for your time and, and everything you shared with us. Thanks for having me. I, I, it's what I do is I talk for a living. So thanks for putting me in, uh, in front of a camera and microphone and allowing me to talk. Good. You, you do it well. So keep at it. I, I try. Thanks. And uh, again, Real Men Feel is brought to you by the Goodman Project. Visit goodmenproject.com for more conversations no one else is having. And thanks for joining us, everyone, whether it was live or on Facebook Live. Uh, catch us wherever you're listening to us. Post a rating, a review, or share a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Visit realmenfield.org. Check us out on Facebook. Send us feedback. And we'll talk to you again soon. Be well. Thank you for listening to Real Men Feel. Reach out to us at realmenfeel at gmail.com. Learn more about Andy Grant at theandygrant.com. Until next time, visit realmenfeel.org or the Real Men Feel Facebook group and share what you thought of this episode. Please give this podcast a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you are discovering Real Men Feel. Visit goodmenproject.com for more of the conversations no one else is having.